Shalom and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom and welcome to Torah to the People. I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus. It is a true honor to have with me today Dr. Lani Yanishevsky and Yuri Yanishevsky, both of whom are Ukrainian immigrants and former refugees from this uh, to our country. And they've been doing some really amazing work that's been highlighted by the local news, by national news, the Today Show, and the Associated Press uh, for work that they're doing helping to translate the medical records of Ukrainian children who have cancer, which of course, when we think about the, the war and, and all these horrible scenes unfolding, this marginalized and, and very vulnerable population is not the thing that comes to mind first. But they have been doing tremendous work, and I'll let them talk, of course, more about it, um, helping these kids that have tremendous need um, and are obviously having to flee from their home um, in the midst of their treatment. So, Dr. Lana Yuri, thank you so much uh, for being here. Welcome to Torah to the People. Thank you. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. And thank you for having us into your home uh, today. If you, if you hear any barks, uh, you <laughs> listeners, uh, their wonderful dog uh, is with us too. So, uh, thank you for joining us as well. <laughs> so, I want to begin before we get into the amazing work that you're doing now, uh, just to talk a little bit about how you got here. Um, literally how you got to, to Memphis, um, but also, and we'll get to this, how you got uh, to the work that you're doing today. So um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like coming to America as refugees in the early 90s and 91? Sure. So we probably knew, well, we knew we wanted to come. By that time, my brother left and already been to Memphis in 1990. So we were kind of responsible for both our sets of parents, my parents and Yuri's parents, and Yuri's parents were much older, so it was hard to uproot them. Um, but we had about nine months preparation to um, gather all the, um, you know, kind of select what we wanted to take and ship our pictures and to here, to the United States, and um, kind of prepare um, for leaving. Um, I finished medical school by that time, Kiev, uh, Bogomolets Kiev Medical Institute, and um, also was pregnant. <laughs> You're eight months pregnant, you were saying, yeah. when you came here. Wow. Yeah, to, to the day. <laughs> wow. Because um, we landed... 
October 16 in New York and then landed in Memphis October 17 and then David was born November 17. Wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so poor Yuri, he was the he was the head of the household, having an eight months uh, pregnant wife and his older parents coming with us and two suitcases and two hundred dollars. Wow. Wow. And can you talk for our, our listeners who aren't totally aware of the situation, what what was the situation like in Ukraine that led you to leave um, in 1991? So it was Soviet Union. It wasn't, it was, Ukraine was just one of the republics, one of 15 republics with Russia being the largest. Um, so the whole Soviet Union was under the same regime and the regime was probably the same as it is in Russia now, no freedom, no freedom of speech. Um, heavy anti-Semitism. There were actually pogroms were um, prepared uh, and happening as we were uh, getting ready to leave. Hmm. Um, so, um, you know, you wouldn't want to say that you're Jewish. Um, they always asked that, like when we were in high school, let's say there were 30 people in this in the classroom and when teacher comes in on september 1st which is always first day of school they will ask you what's your nation nationality well here it's religion but there it was what's your nationality yes and people would say russian ukrainian and then when you say you're jewish the whole class laughs they laughed yeah so here actually it's not uh by religion in the passport nationality for u.s citizens says USA, nationality is USA. Their nationality was Russian, Ukrainian, Jewish, Tajik. Those were, those were the nationalities. And obviously being Jewish there was uh, the least uh, optimal situation. So I know during the Soviet Union, a lot of people didn't outwardly practice their Judaism at all. And, and even inward, even in their family, a lot of traditions got, uh, you know, went generations without really being celebrated. Were you in in a Jewish community or did you have Jewish traditions growing up or not really? There's until no moved? Jewish community. There was one synagogue for three million population. And the only time we went there was to get, well, my dad would go there because if they would see someone from school go there. So I've never been to synagogue, for example. But we would go there to get matzah for Passover. That was like one little package of matzah. But we had, from my mom's family, there was a big uh, Jewish tradition because grandpa was very, he was Orthodox Jewish. And he's... So my grandma's parents made Aliyah to Palestine in Sodis. Mm. And he was um, Lubavitch mm. no. Well, he was a rabbi, and he's actually is um, buried in the Jerusalem uh, cemetery. Really? The rabbis are. We found his grave. So he was some kind of Hasidic, Hasidic rabbi? Hasidic rabbi, yeah. 
Wow. But uh, of course, people were not leaving Soviet Union in the 30s, but it was like there was some connection to Bay Area somehow. I think mom's sister was dating his nephew or something. So he got they got the permission to leave. Wow. So before World War Two, But my grandpa always, obviously he didn't have 10 people to pray with, but he prayed every morning, every night. He had the... To fill in and tell you. Yeah. And he would, we would sell it. Like he didn't, he lived in Belarus, but when he got older and sick, he stayed with us. So I still remember that Passover he did. Wow. When I was a little girl. And, he and then was he would. In Stalin's prison, right? Yeah, he was in Stalin's prison for, for celebrating Israel independence. Mm. That was in. So he went to prison in 48 and got out when Stalin died in 52. Wow. Mm. Just for celebrating Israeli yeah. independence. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of country that you were freeing, fleeing from. Let's, yeah. Wow. It's hard to imagine it in America, or at least for me, I'm 33, um, the kind of just totalitarianism um, but I think it's very important to understand because I really think Russians are right now under the same regime. And the regime was, it was very interesting just kind of gathering the pieces back then. So my grandpa had three other friends and they all gathered together to celebrate. So three went to prison, not four three went to prison and the fourth one they all knew who informed on them mm -hmm. mm. but that one was in a car accident which was obviously staged Did, so you mean you think he was killed by the mm -hmm. government absolutely mm. yeah. the one who survived who informed on them yeah. even even he got killed absolutely mm. yeah and this is. And my mom still, she was the youngest out of four kids, so she still lived with them when they came. She remembers in the middle of the night, four people in the dark, long coats came and took him away. And grandma wanted to commit suicide because she couldn't handle it, because it was, she was ostracized because he was the enemy of the state. Mm. But she didn't because she's, mom still was little. She, wasn't, she was like 16 or 17. So she, she, she kept back. living because she had, people depended on her. Yeah. Your mom depended. Wow. Mm -hmm. So sad. Tragic. Yeah. But when we left uh, the Soviet Union, at that time things were not as bad as they were during the Stalin's time, yet, uh, you know, finding a job for a Jew was still a significant challenge, for example. So or getting into, like, I didn't get into Kiev Institute. I had to go to Smolensk, which was kind of in the middle of nowhere, Smolensk Medical Institute, to be able to get in. So you, you weren't able to go to, you were essentially discriminated against. Yeah, they told my mom that, 
only four Jews in the in two hundred were allowed. So wow. it was a quota. And what about so you, Yuri, you also got your engineering degree in you in the Ukraine. Right. I actually got it from uh, the top engineering school in the whole Ukraine, Kyivo Technical University. The way I got there uh, was, I would say, unconventional because they also were not accepting Jews. But uh, my uncle um, was in the auto repair industry, and so he was repairing a car of uh, one of the top administration officials at this university. And so that's how I was able to be admitted into this university, even though I was a straight-A student, uh, at school, graduated with a gold medal, but that's how I got admitted to the university. And then I graduated from this university uh, also as a straight-A student. Wow. So, But I would not be able to be accepted there without this connection. Mm. And so many people, Jew, Jews that were as qualified as you, never would have gotten in be, but because your uncle knew someone. Yeah. Wow. It was pointless to even try mm. because yeah. you would not be able to get in. Mm. So you leave that atmosphere of anti-Semitism and persecution and um, come to America. And can you talk for a little bit about what that was like just starting a family? Um, David was your first Mm -hmm. child, right? So uh, eight months pregnant, coming to a whole new country where did you speak the language? Barely. We we tried to know English, but same like, we could understand maybe some. We could really read it, but to be able to um, to carry on conversation like we're doing, no. Wow. So, what was that like? You you had we were talking a little bit before we started recording. There's still even to this day a wonderful community of Ukrainian refugees yes. that have con- that came here around the time you did. Some a little bit before. But um, can you talk about how the Jewish community helped you um, build a home here and also what it was like to be a part of a community, a sub-community of other refugees? And what, just what was your life like in those early days? So when we came, well, in the airport, Memphis airport, we were greeted by, uh, of course, my brother, but also tons of volunteers. Like, they had a couple for Yuri's parents, and they had a couple for us. And they are our dearest friends, and we consider them as a family. But they helped us a ton. Mm. So it's Barbara. That is, that is Scott and Barbara Klesmer. Wow, really? Yeah. And you're still to this day close with them? Very close, yeah. Wow. They're family. Yeah. yeah. And they brought us a little stuffed animal, little bear. And then Barbara would come after David was born. She would come with Shira every every day, uh, help me with breastfeeding, help me with David changing his diapers. It's amazing, and uh, they were incredible. And then Rabbi Greenstein was there, and then there were also several ladies from Jewish Family Service. So Henry Marcus. Henry was Marcus. There. She uh, would take me to all the appointments of the appointments. A lot of people donated stuff. Allah donated huh. lots of her clothes. You hear about 
and, and we know about hundreds of thousands or millions of refugees um, from this conflict already in the first month. And you th think about each one being an individual person, a family, human beings, not just numbers, but human beings. And the power that one family, the Klasmers, um, or a community like ours can have on people who are coming in, in a very desperate situation. Um, it's just, I think it, it speaks to the power and hopefully um, as, as a synagogue, a, a temple, but also as a Jewish community, we really hope to be able to welcome many more refugees um, from, from this conflict. Perhaps they're still um, resettling many Afghani refugees um, now too, but as we look into trying to, to host or trying to welcome refugees from this conflict, it, it really, I think, speaks a lot to the power of, of individuals and families and communities to really make a difference to people who are... Um, misplaced. Yeah, yeah, misplaced. And, I, and they are so scared. I mean, oh my gosh, things that they've witnessed... You just hope that you would never witness. And the fear, that fear of when the bombs are just exploding next to you. Hard, hard to believe that we were saying just a month ago, normal life. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the places you've walked by, the stores, the parks, all of a sudden they're, they're cratered by, by rockets. Um, and the cruelty, you know, the cruelty of Russians just really bothers me. It's just, war is war. I understand they are under orders, but they don't have to be cruel. There are reports of them killing the whole families or killing parents in front of children or raping or just awful and just you know bombing this here in Mariupol is the reports are completely mind-blowing how is it possible how is it possible that humans are treating humans like that the humans that were brothers and then the Russian propaganda I heard that what Russians are telling uh, uh, people in Russia is that uh, the reason Mariupol looks like it does is because uh, Ukrainian army, when they were retreating, they were blowing up the apartment buildings. So the pro Russian propaganda is saying, look, the R Ukrainians are doing this to their own people. Yes. Yeah. So they believe it. The Russians believe Russians it. Russians yeah. believe it. Right. But we've always said, you know, how did Holocaust happen? That's how it happens. It happens because people choose dictators and don't do anything about it. And that, you know, right. Whether or not they believe the information, which by all accounts right now, there, many Russians are convinced by the propaganda. But even if they're not, they're too afraid, perhaps in Russia and maybe in Germany for good reason, of standing up yeah. to the government. But when enough people are silent, that's what that's allows what this to happen. Because yeah. mm -hmm. I, I organized a little group when the war started of our high school, like my high school. 
it, there was a group, everybody knew kind of everybody, and we're all from Russia, Ukraine, um, Canada, Israel, and the United States. So on the group, you know, there was a talk, well, there are some brave Russians, and <laughs> Ukraine, the ones that were in Ukraine, they didn't want to hear about it, and they said that we are paying with our lives now for their silence mm. and for their lack of wanting to think about it. So I want to ask you, before we get into the work that you're doing today, um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like having grown up in Kiev, um, seeing on the news and, and hearing reports uh, both of you are saying that you're still in touch with with either friends or family, some still in Kiev, some have are in different parts of the country in Lviv um, and elsewhere. But can you talk about what it's like, not just watching this on the news, like all Americans or all Israelis or all people with a conscience that are just so heartbroken about this, but what is it like to have to witness this as people who... You know, you know where these buildings are. You know the people that are under fire. What's that been like for you? It has been absolutely horrendous. It's, uh, and we know where those places are when they say that uh, there was some shelling near Kiev Polytechnic University. That's where you know, I went for six years. And, and then uh, when there is shelling in various districts of the capital, we've been there. Yeah. Lana has also been to Kharkiv, and uh, so she knows various districts there where the apartment buildings are getting destroyed by rockets. And then- Do uh, all the little villages like Irpin, we've been there, you know, how many times, Bucha, we've been there, how many times? Suburbs um, of Kiev. Suburbs, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's the, you know how I think all Americans remember what, when 9-11 happens, what they were doing? It's the same thing. Like I remember when I learned about that the war happened and just frantically trying to reach out to my family, to my friends, making sure they're okay. What are they doing? That whole torturous escape. Um, And just seeing that. But even Mariupol, we were not there. We've never been to Mariupol. But just to see it, it's just awful. It's mind-boggling. It's, um, we just cry. I cry all the time. Mm. But then you cry it out for a week or two, and then you become numb. And then it starts hitting you again. You start crying again. Thank but it, it was, you know, the, I've heard somewhere on the news, and it's so true that you, Ukrainians have been robbed of their childhood and their, um, you know, older people. They just, they're misplaced. They lost their quietness. Imagine when you retire, that's time to enjoy life without having to go 
to work, they lost everything. They're, it's not like us when we came here. We were refugees, it was all planned. They had nothing to plan. My cousin that fled Kiev, she had literally whatever she was standing in, that's it. And she had enough sense to get all her passports and documents, that was it. And she, she was able to flee Kiev and is she, where is she now? She's in Lviv? She or? is in uh, D.C. Oh, she, she made it to D.C. Because she had a, um, visa. a visa. But so the U.S., you were saying earlier, ag- agreed to take in 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. But if we, we haven't started processing any of that yet. So you can only get here if you already had a visa before the, from before the conflict. So uh, it's hard enough to imagine what it would have been like for you coming to a place, a new child on the way, um, didn't speak the language, um, very little in the way of possessions or money. And you said, we, for the sake of us, for, for our family, for our future, we want to start a new life. But coming, like you said, you had months and months to plan. Um, most people here in now in this conflict, maybe, maybe were able to bring a suitcase. Um, most from what I've read had to pack up their homes within an hour or two, um, and decide to leave many walking for miles and miles and miles, um, to get across the border to, to Poland or to Moldova. Um, it's just, uh, almost unthinkable situation. Yes. And we had here Memphis Jewish community who welcomed us with open arms and helped us with everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, those uh, refugees will not have that. Right. So at the end, I would like to talk for for a little while um, about what are things that we can do, either as individuals or as a community or organizations we can support to help, um, to help these Ukrainians who are fleeing, if, if you know through your networks things that we can do um, to help. But first, I wanna talk about what you're doing to help. Um, we've hopefully read and, and um, we'll, we'll post these articles in the show notes. You've been getting a lot of press. The first one I saw was uh, St. Jude actually published a post on Facebook uh, about the amazing work that you're doing. But, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now? Um, Lana, you're a pediatrician um, with uh, Laurelwood Pediatrics, and uh, so you're not an oncologist. No. Uh, but, and uh, Yuri, you are also not a, not a doctor, not a physician, but you've worked uh, at St. Jude or ALSAC for many years. Can you talk about um, the work, just the, the day in, day out, what it's like to do the work of translating medical records? Um, for for these children who are undergoing cancer treatment, and then how you how did you think about this, or how did you get into doing uh, this work to help this vulnerable population? So first off, uh, I want to say that uh, Saint Jude Global Teams uh, did something unbelievable. They were able to partner with uh, clinics and. Uh, fundraising foundations in Ukraine and in Europe 
to organize uh, hours of divorce starting really because they already had relationship same same jude you're saying within Saint hours jude, yes. of the conflict. within hours they organized uh, this evacuation of cancer patients from the ukrainian hospitals to poland and then from poland with the help again of the foundational partners there, uh, they started to send uh, those children to Polish hospitals. And then when Polish hospitals became full, they started sending them to the European hospitals. Hmm. And so uh, record translation is just a very essential step, but it's a minor step in this whole massive effort that is done by thousands of people on the ground uh, in those countries. And the reason that the translation is important is because uh, those uh, hospitals cannot admit patients uh, with records in Ukrainian because they don't know Ukrainian. They know English or they know Polish. Or Italian or German. Right. And so that's when uh, the request came uh, to help translate those charts before these patients reach the hospitals. And then Lana can continue. So one of my patients just connected me with St. Jude because they knew that I'm Ukrainian. And um, that's how it started. I got my first record to translate. And it was hard <laughs> <laughs> because um, Ukrainian abbreviations, medical abbreviations, especially in oncology, I haven't practiced it in 30 years, so obviously they're newer and different. Um, so that was hard, but we have a little community, you know, on WhatsApp. So if you're not sure what it is, you just shoot the question and somebody will answer. And now we've accumulated just a lot of um, uh, abbreviations and put them all in Google Docs. So if you find something new, which you find every single chart, there is something new that you yeah. haven't seen before. And not to mention probably physicians' handwriting from. It's from all most of it. It's all typed. But I got recently several the handwritings. Hmm. Yes, that was challenging. You had to enlarge it and try to figure it out. So you're part of a group of physicians from all over the from country or the world? All over the world, all over the world. So whoever has WhatsApp account and a physician can join. And so how do you so, find the medical records? Who, who, who No, St. Jude them? does everything. So it's all through St. Jude? It's all through St. Jude. Wow. But, you know... I, if you know someone, they're asking, hey, can we join? Sure. And so they can try to translate. Not everybody, like some people leave it because they feel like they can't translate, but. And history very accurate because you can't have mistakes there because uh, those children are already on the edge between life and death. And so you can't have any mistakes. So n being able to know what medication or treatment they've already undergone, what their dosages are. What their true diagnosis is. It's mm -hmm. not enough to just say leukemia. You have to know all the staging and all the pathology and histopathology and all the genetic. So there are a lot of, that goes into it. Mm.
and are they in remission, are they palliative care? Because there are a lot that cannot be cured. Is it your sense that most of the children who have cancer are being treated in Ukraine have made it out? Hard to tell. Not yet, because uh, right because now... Because we continue to translate. I think you are on like 750 yeah. charts. Yeah. So you've done 750? Not me, no. The whole uh, organization. Wow. This whole group. Wow. But uh, there are thousands of cancer children there? On average, it's 1,000 new diagnoses a year that are made in Ukraine alone. Hmm. So there's, unfortunately, many more that are still not out. But right. are, are they able in various cities like Lviv or places that haven't seen a ton of um, shelling or, or conflict yet? Are they still able to be treated? There is. Yeah, but there are a lot of them are leaving because you don't know. It's better to leave when when you have, you know, peaceful sky than right. under the shelling. Right, and then I'm sure that many doctors and nurses and people who care for them are either not able to stay or are also displaced, and then supplies and medications. I think it's pretty amazing that the majority of doctors, especially that are dedicated to those children they're living in the hospital. Just the doctors there. are living in the hospitals yeah. just so they can be yeah. sure to care for the patients. There are a lot of surgeons that are operating like Ahmadiyat, which is the main children's hospital in Kiev. That's how it started because it got bombed. So immediately Sinjit said, let's evacuate. But they're the main hospital that's treating adults and children right now with the wounds and war. Um, medical conditions, but those doctors, they just leave in the, in the hospital. Hmm. Do you, have you been in touch with any of those physicians? I don't know any of the physicians yeah. right now. Yeah. But St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is in touch. Yeah, they're in touch. Yeah. And they have, they've set up, so they, they are in touch in Kiev. Then they have a clinic in Lviv to our physician you know, is able to assess the children and to make sure that they're okay for the journey. Hmm. And some, some of them are being transported in the buses, some of them are being transported in the ambulances, and some cannot be transported because hmm. they're too sick. Hmm. And then, for example, last week, uh, when uh, St. Jude got a plane and uh, they were flying, they, they were going to fly five patients with their families from Poland to Memphis. Unfortunately, one child got very sick and was unable to, to be put on the flight. Hmm. So only four families came in. Wow. So I wanted- And then everybody oh, that all the newly diagnosed in Poland have no place in the hospitals in Poland, so they have to be transported somewhere else usually. All these hospitals are full now. Right, right. I mean, I, I didn't realize this before um, I worked as a chaplain at Methodist downtown. Um, I, I never realized that in our country, hospitals, even before COVID, were always 90% full. ICU was always 93-ish percent full. 
we didn't have it. We don't have a ton of excess capacity. Um, so I, I don't know what the typical hospital staffing looks like in Poland, but you can only imagine with the amount of refugees, over a million refugees in Poland alone, right. what that would look like. Yeah. So trying to, being a, a kid with cancer, newly diagnosed with cancer, I mean, you can think about as a, as a parent, even in, in America, how much you'd be trying to do for your, your child to get them the diagnosis, the care, the every, everything that they would be trying to do. And the stress. Right. Trying to do that as a refugee. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you mentioned the plane that St. Jude chartered to, to come to America. Were you, or to come actually specifically to Memphis, were you able to meet any of the, the patients who were on that, and the families who were on that flight? Yes, in fact, uh, I was asked to step on board of that plane uh, before they started disembarkation. So I stepped in uh, along with the director of social work from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And so she was telling them, uh, she was welcoming them and was explaining to the families what they will be going through in the next hour or so. And so I was translating that to those families in Ukrainian. So what was it like for those families to get to land in Memphis, Tennessee, and to have someone get on the plane that spoke their language? I'm sure it was great for them. You know, their faces lit up because uh, we showed them enough respect to talk to them in their language. Um, they were exhausted. They probably have never been on a transatlantic flight. Mm. Uh, so kids were, were actually much more alive than, uh, than their parents. <laughs> so parents were wiped out. And, but, um, you know, they were wiped out to the degree where, you know, we even brought them snacks and drinks. They didn't even want to take any. Mm. That's how tired they just uh, want. They didn't want food or drink. They just wanted sleep. Exactly, yes. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, then I had to tell them, hey, you need to drink because uh, you get dehydrated on the flight. And so then they took water bottles from me. Mm. Wow. But, so what, what was it like for you to, to see the, after weeks of working to support children just like them, to come face to face with them? What was that like? It, to me, it was amazing. Not only because uh, I could see children and families, but because I also knew that they came to the best possible place on the planet, uh, not just from the medical point of view, but from the care point of view, where people would actually care for them. And uh, uh, what Sinju does is really unparalleled in terms of the care, you know, not even medicine. Medicine is awesome. Research is awesome. But the care that St. Jude gives to the families is uh, just something you won't see anywhere. One example is that uh, I saw an email that uh, the chef in charge of the cafeteria and all the meals was figuring out how to cook borscht you know, for those families. So what other hospitals would do that? Right, just to make them feel one tiny semblance of home. Yes. That's, that's how far uh, St. Jude goes. And were you helping with the recipe? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> no, but Lana said that she needs to connect the chef with, with her my mother. Mom, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, they they go to uh, the lens that no one does. So these these were the first four patients from Ukraine that St. Jude has brought over? Yes. Yeah. Is there plans to bring more? That's what we heard. We expect to have some families to come this week and then hopefully the week after. Wow. So it's a fluid situation. They are, they're working on it. So, But yes, I expect more families to come to St. Jude. And that same day, or maybe the same week that that plane came, uh, the first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, was was at St. Jude. Yes. And was that the same day? No, families came on Monday. Dr. Biden came to the hospital uh, this past Friday. And you got to meet Dr. Biden. Yes, I had the great privilege to meet with her and shake hands with her. So it was good. Yeah. Wow. And then. Uh, uh, Dr. Biden spoke to us, and then Marla Thomas spoke to us, and uh, one of the St. Jude patients who now works at St. Jude also spoke to all the guests. And uh, one impactful thing I can tell you that Marla Thomas brought up, Marla Thomas said that when her father started uh, St. Jude in Hospital, he said, no child should die in the dawn of life. Danny Thomas never said, no American child should die in the dawn of life. He, he said no child should die in the dawn of life. And St. Jude remains uh, true to that uh, vision that the founder had. Wow. It's no child should die in the dawn of life. We all, everybody who works does something to contribute to society. Um, whether you... Uh, change tires, or whether you um, are a rabbi. But when you walk into the doors of St. Jude and you, you, they, they have volunteer opportunities, at least they did um, before COVID. I'm sure some of those they are coming back. Do. I became a volunteer, really? so I can meet the children. <laughs> there you go. But when you walk in those doors, you see that the work that they do, that you do, is really, truly some of the most impactful and important work being done on this whole planet. And so um, just huge kol vod, huge all the respect to you for helping to be a part of a place that is, like you said, trying to ensure that no child, in Danny Thomas's words, dies in the dawn of life. Exactly. And it is only possible because of uh, the overwhelming support uh, that millions of people show to St. Jude each and every year and dozens of different corporations who support us financially. Without that, there would be no St. Jude. There would be no saving lives. Right. And you work uh, at ALSAC, the fundraising arm yes. of St. Jude, and you are the director of... Um, administration and financial services. Is that correct at LSAC? I'm in information technology department uh, responsible for administrative and financial systems. Systems, systems. So I, I meant to do these at the beginning of the podcast and then we got right into the conversation. So, um, and, But you have actually spent 
17 years, you said, I think in total, before we started recording, you said you were, you spent 17 years at St. Jude or ALSAC. And in fact, just three months after arriving in the U.S., you started to work at St. Jude. That's correct, yes. That was uh, very fortunate for me that uh, they decided to hire me in 1992. Wow. I was absolutely thrilled to be there. So a whole career of dedication to that special place. Yes, yes. And it's, uh, it feels awesome. It feels like... Uh, I'm helping to save lives, even though I'm not a medical professional, but everyone who works at St. Jude and at LSAC are contributing into saving lives. And that's what St. Jude is all about. This is uh, one big life-saving machine that we are very fortunate that uh, St. Jude is located in Memphis, but it exists for a single purpose, and that is to save lives of children. Which, what could be more Jewish than that? In the, in the Talmud, we read to save a life is to save the entire world. And I was about to quote that oh. when you said that. Yes, yes, that's exactly what... You read my mind, essentially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as a rabbi, you obviously speak faster than I can. So that's exactly what happened, yes. Well, your, your words inspired me um, that that text, which is almost 2,000 years old, um, when, you, when you walk into St. Jude, and I have to admit the first time I took a tour, I really couldn't, I couldn't stop crying because it was just so moving that all of these people, not only, of course, you have the best scientists and doctors in the world, but like you said, the care professionals who, cancer is a horrible disease. And going through it as a kid, you can only imagine what that would do to their morale, to their mental health. But when you see that there's an entire team of people dedicated, not only helping them feel okay, but to making sure that in the time that they're in St. Jude, they actually have fun, they actually find joy, it's really remarkable. And I want to encourage everybody who has not been to St. Jude to, to take a tour, um, if you can, or to volunteer. Uh, to to give money, to, to run in the St. Jude half marathon or 5K or full marathon, uh, anything you can to support the work that this very special place, and like you said, that that Memphis is really lucky to have, um, a world, world-class, if not the best children's research hospital, cancer research hospital in the world, to have it in our city. Absolutely, and uh, from the Talmud wisdom, I conclude that St. Jude, uh, has saved the world thousands times over because St. Jude saved thousands of lives of children, not just in this country, but all over the world because we partner with many hospitals, institutions all over the world, and research proto- the treatment protocols developed at St. Jude have been used all over the world. Hmm. Right, so discoveries made here mm-hmm. are used to save lives everywhere. Yes. So I want to switch gears and get a little bit back to the personal, and then I, I want to make sure I'm mindful of your time because you're taking time out of your busy day. Um, we're recording this on a Sunday, but ordinarily you both have full-time jobs, plus you're doing all of this work translating the medical records, nights, weekends, um, because every, every life that you save 
um, is, is a world entire. And, and really, this work is truly sacred. Uh, but I want to ask, how has this been for you, Lana, in just personally knowing the impact that your work is having on, on kids just like you were one day, uh, a Ukrainian child uh, leaving, uh, leaving your home country? It, it's great. It's good, good to know that you're making a difference. You know, I, you have to be very persistent to do it because you get tired of the translating and it's, it's not easy. It's very time-consuming. But just to know it helps and you're contributing and you're doing something to help Ukraine and to help Ukrainian children is very significant and I feel like I, that's my mission in life, to help children, and definitely fulfilling it. Um, it also very nice, and you, when the child, when you translate the uh, medical records, they will let you know when that child reached the hospital. So it's very, very moving to know, oh, they're in safety. Wow. So you actually get a sense of um, the welfare of and and accomplishment, like your work, is really making a difference because it, yeah. it is. Yeah. Do you know any more kind of details or specific stories about any of the children that you've helped? No, nothing specific except from the from the um, medical record. But some some are very difficult to read. Hmm. Because you know the ones through hell and back. Mm. They went to hell and back before the war. Mm-hmm. Mm. So they're they're fighting two wars, and their parents do too. Yeah. And they have to hide in multi basements of the hospitals now. And some can't get to the basement because they're too sick. And I heard on NPR that uh, children are coming to this hospital, Ahmadiyat, with uh, wounds that should never be seen in children. You know, they're seen in soldiers in a combat, mm. but now they've been seen in children, and children die from those wounds. Mm-hmm. It's so inhumane. It's it's just heartbreaking. So all of us, the whole world, looking at this war and feeling totally helpless, like there's nothing that any one of us can do to, to make a difference. Um, but the two of you found something that you can do to make really a tremendous difference, to, to save lives, to... Um, help these desperate, not just kids, but parents who must be worried sick about their kids. Um, how, does that, how does that fill you up in this really dark and horrible time? Well, you know, it's hard to be helpless. That's how we felt. We felt very helpless, like you can't throw money. At this, they don't need money, they can't use it. Um, you know, you want to just go and save them, but that's not feasible. 
So doing this definitely helps. I mean, we're, we're also donating. We're also, um, there's a great thing going on, 901 um, FedEx that organized, you know, to give the medical supplies to Israeli hospital. It's called 901 We Stand With Ukraine.com. Hmm. That FedEx organized, and uh, there are uh, drop points in Memphis to drop off the supplies that uh, they need, uh, the humanitarian supplies. Uh, and like, it goes uh, to Israeli field hospital in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, that Israeli team has actually set up a field hospital to care for people in Ukraine. Yeah. Wow. And they give you like list of medical supplies that they need. And, and anybody can just drop them off and donate them. Yeah. Wow. And we just went to Costco and we bought uh, like a bunch of medications and you know, medical supplies and Lana mm-hmm. went and dropped them off. Uh, yeah. hmm. One drop location is Jewish Federation. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So it makes it easy if you live um, in East Memphis, Germantown, Collierville, Cordova. Yep. Jewish Federation right in the JCC. There are, I think, four different locations. Wow. So we'll, we'll put all this information in the show notes. But since you you have family, friends there, since you're so t- dialed into the, the situation, are there other ways that our listeners can and our, our community as, as a synagogue can help? What, what would be the best way, in your opinion, um, if there's anything we can do to help? In my opinion, uh, supporting St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is uh, how uh, you impact uh, the situation because uh, St. Jude is so actively involved there and St. Jude actually has boots on the ground Mm -hmm. in Europe now. So some St. Jude doctors and employees went there to work pretty much around the clock, you know, with those uh, local hospitals and charitable organizations to get this moving. And then uh, St. Jude is, is accepting and welcoming those families and uh, not just patients, but like uh, with those uh, four kids, uh, there came 14 family members, like you know, their siblings and parents, you know, they came with us and St. Jude is just taking care of all of them from housing to meals to anything, anything they need, St. Jude is providing them with that. Well, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Um, we'll we'll drop links if if we think of any other organizations or um, places to support. We'll drop those links in the show notes. Um, but I just want to thank you both for for all the incredible work that you're doing. Um, our prayers are with you. Our thoughts are with you, and of course, with the people of Ukraine. Um, but really from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of, of our whole community at Temple Israel, you're really, truly doing holy work. Thank you and kol Hakavod. Thank, thank you, you so much and thank you for support. We really appreciate it. And thank you for the opportunity to share our story with, uh, with uh, Memphis Jewish community. And uh, I ask that you please pray for Ukraine and pray for Ukrainian children. Amen. Amen. Well, join us next time on Tour to the People. Uh, take care, everybody. Thanks for being with us.